Good morning again. If you have a Bible, will you please turn in it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, where we, where we just read. I do want to give um, another recommendation to you as I did last week. So our, our collect this morning, this is a prayer that changes every week, every second Sunday of Advent. This is the prayer that we pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of Your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which You have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with You with the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So, I, I want to challenge you as your pastor, one of the most important things you can ever do in your life is say, I'm going to read the Bible every day of my life, or most of the days of my life. <laughs> I, I would be as guilty as anyone in saying it doesn't happen every single day, but it should happen most days of your life. The, the Word of God is a sword by which He pierces and transforms our lives and makes them as they should be as human beings, his image bearers, his children. There are lots of, th and I'm going to talk to you about this in a minute. This is a preview of the rest of the sermon. There are lots of statements in our passages about judgment this morning. One of them is that he shall kill the wicked by the breath of his mouth. The other is that there's an axe laid to the root of the tree. The, the root's under the ground, right? You can't just access that from the top above the surface. Both of these are references to His Word and the way that He judges. You see, if you submit your life to His Word, He will convict you of sin and He will transform your life to be like Him. But if you resist His Word, it will undo you and it will destroy you. So I, I don't mean to be too simplistic this morning, but you've got options. Two of them. You can submit your life to God's Word you can listen to it, hear it, heed it, and follow it, or not. And those two paths will determine the trajectory of your life. They really will. It's not that one day in it is going to change everything. It's that day after day, a life lived under it will be very different. A different kind of fruit than a life that is lived against it. So, we have this devotional guide for Advent. I encourage you to use it. It's a great tool. It's a way to get you into Scripture, even if it's a small bit. I remember one summer during seminary. You know, during seminary, you're supposed to be reading lots of stuff, reading the Bible all the time. One summer, I was doing landscape restoration work in Louisiana, which means you're seeding pipelines and the sides of highways in a hundred and some odd heat, whatever. And I'm a seminary student. I'm supposed to be reading the Bible all the time, right? I, read, I sit down to read and I immediately fall asleep. <laughs> Every time. And so, you know what I could do? I could handle one verse. And I could meditate on that. And the Lord used that. Different seasons of life, you can do different amounts. Do something. All right. Thanks for listening to that. Now you've got a, some other stuff to listen to. So, John the Baptist, he goes to a strange place the wilderness. If you really want to preach in Israel, the, way you, the place you should go is Jerusalem, right? John the Baptist goes to the wilderness. He wears strange clothes and he eats strange food. 
Why? Why? John, in a way, is embodying his entire message. Everything he does, he is embodying his message. His message is summarized as repent, which means to change. It means to change your mind and your ways. So this is a good summary of repentance. I love this one. Turn your minds away from the attitudes you have defined for yourselves as the goal of your life. Turn your minds away from the attitudes that you have defined for yourselves as the goal of your life and come back to the mind of God. That's what repentance is. It's coming back to the mind of God about what your life should be. So by preaching in the wilderness, by wearing the clothes he wears and eating the food he eats, John is stripping away everything extra. Everything. He's saying, this is the most essential thing about your life. Repent. Come to the way of God. And yeah, he looked crazy, but repentance is a little bit crazy, isn't it? Sometimes you have to make some hard breaks with the ways of the world if you want to live a life of repentance. So from the outside, repentance will oftentimes look crazy. John doesn't just preach repentance, though. He embodies it. John shows us in his entire person how a person must clear the way for the advent of the Savior. Do you want to receive Jesus and be ready for Him? Then there are some non-essentials that you need to clear out of the way in your life. Are you doing that? Are you bringing your life into the mind of God? Into the ways of God? Now, if you have been around the church much at all, You've probably heard this word repentance a lot. I can remember uh, hearing this word a lot at our church revivals that we had growing up. I I find the popularity of the word is waning today. (laughs) Not much about repentance in the headlines. I I think that we struggle with repentance for at least a couple of reasons. They're related in that they're both um, about self-preservation. So there's this warning that's given sometimes about trying to help someone who's drowning. Do you guys know this? What, what, are, what are you to be careful of if you're trying to help someone who's drowning? That they don't drown you, right? See, see the thing is, when, you, when someone's drowning, they can panic so much at trying to save themselves They can can actually drown people who are trying to help them. And I think that's a picture of how we as humans react to God when He tries to help us by telling us to repent. I think we panic. We search for every form of self-preservation we can find. So our sin nature makes us prideful. Repentance means saying we're wrong, and that can feel like losing a part of ourselves, can't it? even if it's an ugly part of ourselves. (laughs) So in the interest of self-preservation, we resist repentance. We resist help, even if that help is trying to keep us from drowning. (laughs) So that's one reason I think we resist repentance, is because of pride. A second, it's related, but a second reason is, is fear. Because we take repentance sometimes to mean that in every aspect of our being, we are bad. This is a trick of the devil 
A lot of people, including a lot of Christians, live with this vague and all-consuming sense of guilt and self-condemnation. This is the way the devil twists our minds. Whereas God says, I made you and my image is in you, but you're distorting it and I want to help you, the devil says, you are all and bad. <laughs> there is nothing in you, not even a seed of goodness that is worth saving. You're hopeless. So like the drowning person in a panic, you fight and fight hoping this is not true, but you never allow yourself to actually be saved <laughs> by the one who wants to save you. Repentance does mean admitting we're wrong, but it also means letting God rescue us. So, so I, I want to ask you today, all of us, are, are you letting God save you? And what that means is, are you living a life of repentance? Of, in an ongoing way, admitting that you're wrong about things. That you're wrong about the goal of your life sometimes. That you're wrong about the orientation of your life and who you're living for sometimes. Repentance does mean admitting we're wrong, but it also means letting God rescue us. So again, John's message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what's brilliant about this phrase, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is verse 2 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, is that it sounds like it's a place that's at hand, it's the kingdom of heaven, and it is a place, but the cool thing, amazing thing, is that it is also, the kingdom of heaven is the very person of Jesus. Jesus is so substantial in himself, he is such a powerful being, that he brings with him a whole kingdom in himself. Jesus is the kingdom of the heavens because He is the eternal Son of the Father. Now that the Son has come, there have also come with Him the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if the Trinity is present, there are also hosts of adoring angels who are present with them. Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is the King of heaven. And wherever He goes, He contains the full expanse of the heavens with Him. Jesus brings the heavens with him when he comes into the world and when he comes into your life. I've been watching the latest season of The Crown. Don't judge, please. I don't know how you react to that. I was struck by this scene where they're at a party. It's dancing. You know, it's very festive. And the queen is going to make an early exit. But before she leaves there's this announcement that comes over the, the, the speaker that says, Her Majesty the Queen. And everyone stops. They stop what they're doing. They stop the dancing. And they just watch and they bow as she walks away. And I am torn by that because I'm an American and I, wouldn't do, I don't want to do that for any of you when you leave a party, right? You don't want to do that for me when I leave a party. But there's also this sense in which I know they have a lot greater sense of reverence than we do. And what do you do when you are in the presence of the most powerful thing you could ever imagine? You stop, you bow, and you align all your interests with theirs. 
So John is saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The king himself is coming. Align all that you are with him. Why would you want to be focused on anything else when the king of creation is here? Are you living a life of repentance? Are you orienting your whole being around Jesus, the king who has brought the heavens with him? Now here's something that might come as a surprise to us. Christians and churches sometimes think that they need to become more relevant and more like the world in order to reach people, to get people to come to them. John is proof of the opposite. Stay with me. His strangeness acts like a magnet to people. Did you hear this? Like John's preaching in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem where people are supposed to go to meet with God. And what happens? Everybody goes to the wilderness. (laughs) This guy's preaching something real. It might be extreme, but there's something real about it. And here's the other crazy thing that happens. They baptize, and we're told in verse 6 that they're confessing their sins as they're baptized. Look, they're confessing their sins, the sins of their life, audibly for people to hear. (laughs) Now, we like to think of sin as a private issue. That's between me and God, right? No need to air our dirty laundry in public. (laughs) That's not the only perspective in the Bible. Sin is an issue in our lives that affects people all around us. And sin to be really dealt with requires accountability, a recognition of it with others. So I want to share with you some words from a Christian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a Christian who was killed during World War II. And he asked a very interesting question. What is it that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister? God is holy and sinless. He's a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But another Christian is just as sinful as we are. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother or sister than to the holy God himself? And here is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in response. We must ask ourselves, if anybody else needs to go to the Nazareth room, you're very welcome, adult or child, if you're inside, you know, being tormented right now. Bonhoeffer says, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of our sin to God. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution or forgiveness rather than actually receiving forgiveness from the God Himself. Is not the reason perhaps for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we're living on self-forgiveness and not a real forgiveness? And here's the solution He offers to us. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and forgiveness of our sins we're not dealing with ourselves but actually with God? God gives us this certainty through a brother or sister, he says. Our brother or our sister breaks the circle of self-deception. A person who confesses his sins in the presence of another knows that he's no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. 
As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother or sister, the sin has to be brought into the light. And here's how he closes. But since the sin must come to the light sometime, it's better that it happens today between me and my brother rather than on the last day in the piercing light of the final judgment. It is a mercy that we can confess our sins to a brother. Such grace spares us the terrors of the last judgment. Could it be that you're not really dealing with all the sins in your life because you keep them so private only between you and God? And you've been unwilling to bring them into the light of day by sharing them with a brother or sister who might actually hold you in love, mercy, and accountability. Our bishop, I wanted to share this with you, our bishop has begun regularly encouraging clergy to have a person to whom we confess our sins. And this is not because we need someone else's forgiveness always. It's not. Some of us, we're, we're so allergic for some reason to this Catholic idea that we have to confess our sins to another um, that we resist this at all costs. Listen, confession did not develop because Jesus can't forgive our sins directly. That's not the reason it developed. It may be abused, but it developed for accountability. And that's why you and I should have people that we share our sins with. Now, here's, here's the thing. All of us as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. You are. But there are also people that God sets apart for the specific work of expressing and affirming God's forgiveness. That is the work of someone who is ordained to be a priest. And so, yes, go to friends. Have people that you talk to that hold you accountable. But sometimes it's appropriate that you go to a priest who can, in a, in a significant way, express to you and affirm for you God's mercy in your life. Do you have people that you're doing this with? Do you have someone? Again, repentance means for admitting we're wrong, but it also means letting God rescue us. And here's where I'm going to close. John, he is in no way a charlatan who draws crowds for his own prestige. He emphatically points away from himself and toward the Lord. So this is verse 11 of Matthew 3. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I'm going back to how many of these passages speak to judgment. Now, fire, this is the unique thing about it. It works in two ways, right? It, It destroys the things that are impure, things that can't hold up to it. It destroys. But things that are powerful, substantial, it activates them in an even more powerful way. So think about what it does with a metal like gold. It activates it, and it causes it to become more truly and more intensely what it is. This is what fire does. What can't, it can't hold up to it, it destroys. What can becomes more truly what it's supposed to be. This is what Jesus does with people in repentance. When we admit we're wrong and we need His help, He makes us more truly what we're supposed to be. But 
if we are unwilling to turn our life to Jesus, his word will undo us. So chaff is burned up, an axe is laid to the root of the tree. Isaiah, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. What's most important, I think, for you to see about these messages of judgment is that God's judgment is never arbitrary. God is not a tyrant. He is not a cruel ruler. Judgment happens naturally when we resist God's judgments and His attempts to rescue us. In Christ, there is salvation. But in forsaking Christ, what can there be but our undoing? A judgment on our lives. Does God want to judge us or does He want to save us? He wants to save us. But what if we're unwilling to let Him save us? So again, are you letting God rescue you? Are you living a life of submission to God, of repentance? And the fruit, the fullness of His Holy Spirit. Amen.